We believe that one of the greatest things that we can do in ministry here at the fellowship is to help and come alongside people who are passionate, not only about knowing what the Bible says, uh, but about doing what the Word of God says. And one of the ways that we seek to do that here at the fellowship is by teaching the commands of Jesus. We want people to not only know what the commands of Jesus are, but we just have such a high value uh, of helping people understand, okay, this is what Jesus has commanded, and here's where that's hard, and here's where that's fun to do, and here's where that's inspiring to do, and here's some things that we need to think about as we seek to do what Jesus commands us to do. Here's some parts that are hard, but one of the things that we really value here at the fellowship is not just saying, here's what Jesus said, but helping people to obey uh, the teachings and commands of Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus commanded his disciples to do, and I don't just mean the disciples in the, in the Bible, right? I mean, if you're a disciple, you've, this is your command and this is my command, is to let your light shine before all people. If you grew up in church, you may remember the song, uh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no! I'm going to let it shine. If you didn't grow up in church, uh, you've got you've to Google that song. Uh, you'll be singing it for the next 20 years. <laughs> it's, it's that catchy. But we want to learn how to let our light shine. And last week, we began talking about what exactly does that mean? But today, if you have your notes in front of you, you see that we're answering the how. Now, I know in life, uh, there's a lot of different types of learners, Some of us learn by listening, some of us learn by doing, some of us learn by watching. Today, we're going to watch the Apostle Paul let his light shine in a a place and in a context where he wasn't accustomed to. We're going to watch the Apostle Paul actually do the command of Jesus to let your light shine before all people, and then we're going to learn from it. Because in our culture and in our context... What we do and how we do it may look a little different than what we see the Apostle Paul doing, but we can take those principles, we can take those ideas, we can take those specific points, and we can say, okay, in my life, in your life, in 2023, in the state of Massachusetts, in the neighborhood that I live in, with the people that I run with, with the circles that I'm in, how do I take the principles that we see in the Apostle Paul's life as he lets his light shine before people and reproduce that. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 17. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Paul is a traveling missionary. He goes to different places. He starts churches. He disciples people to run the churches and then he leaves and he goes to the next place. And then every so often, he'll come back and visit the places that he's launched churches and he started ministry. And he happens to find himself in a place called Athens. And, and in Acts chapter 17, as Paul is in Athens, we are going to watch him teach us how to let our light shine before men. Look with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 17 this morning, starting in verses 16. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for his uh, friends in Athens, uh, his spirit was provoked within him. 
as he saw the city that was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching a foreign divinity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there uh, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, that's the scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. And before we jump in, may I just say to you to resist the urge... That if you don't understand something immediately in the text and you just kind of like say, okay, I don't get this. I'm going to check out. You, you may not understand what the Areopagus is. That's okay. You may not know what Epicurean or Stoic philosophers thought, taught, and believed. That's okay. What I don't want to do this morning is because there's a little bit of unfamiliarity with our culture and systems and theirs that you just kind of back out and don't take in the teaching. I am confident that you can learn how to let your light shine in the world today, even if at this moment you don't know those three things. And so this morning, if you have a passion to joyfully and passionately let your light shine for all the world to see, then I'm going to teach you how to do that. Or I guess I should say Paul is going to teach you how to do that. And the first thing, if you're making notes this morning, that I want to encourage you to write down, if we're going to do this, here's what we have to do. We have to live near and be disturbed by darkness. We have to live near it and we have to be disturbed by it. We have to be near the lost and we have to be broken for the lost. We have to be near the darkness and we have to be bothered by the darkness. And that's found this morning. If you'll look with me, you see that is found in one verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled of idols. Paul lived near lost folks. Paul lived near the darkness. He didn't run from it. He didn't dig a cave and hide in the cave while he was waiting for the rest of his missionary friends and say, I can't go to Athens. There's too much sinning going on there. No, he was right in the middle of it. And it bothered him. I want you to notice that word in verse 16, that word provoked. His spirit was provoked when he saw the idols. It broke him. Now this morning, you may be thinking to yourself, whoa, I can't say that I feel provoked in my spirit when I see idolatry. And if that's where you're at this morning, I just want to pause and I want to speak right to you this morning. And I want to say, first of all, stick with me. 
Stick with me all the way through this message because you, if that's where you're at this morning, either here or if you're online watching with us this morning, you are not the only person who, if you were to gauge right now and check in with yourself and say, do I feel provoked by idolatry today? I really don't. You wouldn't be the only one who says, I don't. Now, I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's where we want to be. But I'm saying to you, you wouldn't be the only person. And so if you have a hard time identifying with verse 16, I want to talk us through that because I want for you to be equipped to identify how you do feel about idolatry. If it's not that your spirit is provoked within you, then what is it? I want to give you some options this morning and help you kind of categorize and figure out where it is that you fit in with this emotional response to the darkness that is around us. If you're making notes, I encourage you to write these down. Maybe you're not provoked. Maybe I'm not provoked. Maybe we are not provoked. Maybe we are ignorant of the idolatry around us. You might this morning even think back and say, you know, I don't think that over the past week, month, year, or decade, I've even said to myself, you know, self, there seems to be a lot of idolatry around here. You may not even see it around you because you live in the culture. And it may be difficult for you to see what it is that Paul could see because Paul was new to Athens. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want you to hear me with both ears. I'm not insulting you when I use the word ignorant. I'm just saying to you that sometimes... There might be lostness and darkness and idolatry and it doesn't even register on our radar because we're so used to the culture that we live in. So this morning, if you're thinking to yourself, there's no idolatry in our culture. Like I drive down the streets, there's no golden statues, there's no silver statues, there's no wooden false gods that people stop and go and kneel before and pray to. Like, there's no idolatry. I'm going to tell you this morning, in my perspective, this is Pastor Zach's opinion, the greatest source of idolatry in our culture is the worship of self. And it may not be that there are gold shrines on the side of the road, but could it be that there are mirrors in every home. And sometimes when we look back into that mirror, we're looking at the object of our worship. The worship of self is a tremendous source of idolatry today. So maybe it's not that you're provoked. Maybe it's that you're ignorant of the idolatry that we face today. Maybe it's not that you're ignorant of the idolatry. Maybe it's that The word that I wrote down is maybe you're smug towards those people, those sinners, those dirty, horrible, nasty, gross, godless sinners. And it's almost as though you have a condemning attitude towards them, some of us, smug, arrogant, those people. Do you know that wasn't the attitude of Paul at all? Did he agree with idolatry? Absolutely not. Was he strongly and passionately against it? Absolutely. But he didn't show up 
and start condemning people and throwing spiritual rocks at people. Like that's not the way that the Apostle Paul operated his life. And so we, we may feel something very deep and passionate inside of us. And it may not be that our spirit is provoked. It may be that our spirit despises people who we would label as sinners. And if that's where you're at, you need to repent. Because that is not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is to connect with people who need the Lord. You can do that without agreeing, celebrating, affirming, participating, all that stuff. But it may be that we're not provoked. It may be that we're smug. Maybe it's not that we're smug. Maybe it's not that we're ignorant. Maybe it's not that we're smug. Maybe it's that we're apathetic towards the idolatry, towards the lostness and the darkness that is around us. We can get that way, can't we? Isn't it true that sometimes when you live with something for so long and you're always around it and you're just familiar with it, you get comfortable with it, and all of a sudden it just kind of becomes a part of what life is and you just come to be like, whatever. Can I tell you a story from my personal life? So when our kids were small, we taught them, you know, all the stories of the Bible and you can't have false gods. And I have one child who just became enamored with this idea of idols. And uh, I won't tell you which one, but she became so offended. (laughs) Right? And I think this happened before her sister was born. (laughs) And one time we're walking through the store and there, you know, in every store, there's like the, the part where you can get things from all different countries. And so we were walking through and there were some uh, jade Buddhas in, in, walking down the aisle. And my daughter goes, <gasps> and we didn't know what happened. Like we thought she saw a roach or something, you know, like, Argh! and Crystal's saying to her, what's going on? Mom! Those are idols. And can I tell you, we didn't even think about it. We didn't, it didn't even register. It didn't even register that we're just walking right by something that people are regularly burning incense to and kind of the idol of, we, it, it didn't even hit us. But when my daughter, who loves the word of God, saw that, it affected her. Now, I didn't want to pick on one idol, but, but the point that I'm trying to make to you today is that sometimes when you live and have your being in a culture that is accepting of specific idolatrous ways, we can become apathetic to it. And sometimes we need someone with the faith of a child to just gasp. And go, I can't believe this is happening. Apathy. Maybe it's not ignorance. Maybe it's not smugness. Maybe it's not apathy. Maybe it's intimidation. Maybe you feel intimidated by the brokenness 
and the darkness and the lostness and the idolatry around you. Maybe you don't feel provoked in your spirit. Maybe you feel intimidated. If I say this or if I do this, something bad is going to happen to me. There's too many voices shouting out. I can't get my voice in. I can't get in my perspective. I I can't reason with these people because there's too many of them and they're intimidating. Finally, and then we'll move on. Maybe we're not provoked in our spirit because maybe we're enchanted by the darkness. Maybe we're attracted. Maybe we are intrigued. Now, you, you wouldn't celebrate this, I understand. And, and this is work, that soul work, that you need to do between you and God. But if this morning, if you're a follower of Christ and you don't feel provoked and and disturbed at the lostness and the darkness and the idolatry in the world today, then then which one is it? Is it ignorance? Is it smugness? Is it apathy? Is it intimidation? Is it that you are attracted to it? And, And I just share that with you because truly, as we read this, the very first verse, if we are going to be the light of the world, we have to live near it, brokenness and darkness, and be disturbed by it. Not ignorant of it, not intrigued by it, not intimidated by it, but disturbed by it. Second thing that we have to do is live daily with focused purpose. If you're making notes this morning, second thing, if we're asking how do we let our light shine, live daily with purpose. And to demonstrate that, I want you to look in verse 17, and I want you to see the Apostle Paul's commitment to being where people were with a very specific commitment, a very specific purpose, and a very consistent method for connecting with people. Let's look in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, if you go on, you see also that there are some philosophers and in verse 19, he ends up at a place called the Areopagus. So the synagogue is a place for the very religious. The marketplace is where everybody buys and sells and where everything is traded The Areopagus is the place where philosophers would get together and talk about what's the good life, what is the meaning of life, what's good, what's bad, how can I know what's real and true and good, and that's where ideas get pushed around. And here's, I want you to notice a couple of things in in verse 17. He reasoned with people. Now that word means not only to tell something, but to discuss it. To, to say, here's what it is, and now I want to understand where you are, and I want to help you get to that place. Now, that's different than the word that we use for preaching and proclamation. The word for preaching is to stand and declare. That's not what Paul was doing in the marketplace and at the synagogue and the Areopagus. He was reasoning with people. He was saying, here's the gospel. Where are you at? And let me help you walk you 
to the place where you can experience life in Christ. He was reasoning with people. He was connected with people. He understood where people were on these various important topics. He reasoned with them. And he not only reasoned with them, and he didn't do it occasionally, but the scripture says that he did it every day. Look at verse 17. Every day he was with these people. Every day he was reasoning with people wherever they were. So how? How do I let my light shine? I'm going to live daily with a focused purpose to be a blessing to the people around me and to point them to Jesus. Now, that's easy for a preacher in a church building to say. I know that it takes a lot. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of consistency. It takes a lot of grace. Because let's be honest, some people are difficult. Amen? But daily, Paul was hanging out where people were. And he was reasoning with them. He was listening to them. He was interacting with them. He was engaging in ideas with them. If you want to be the light of the world, I submit to you this morning, this is what it takes. Be where people are every day and be focused on being who God wants you to be. Third, anchored in the empty tomb. If you're making notes, how can I be the light of the world? Jot this down. Number three, you have to be anchored in the empty tomb. I know that people are people And there's all kinds of things they want to talk about. And when people hear that I'm a pastor, there's no telling what the next thing that they're going to ask me is, right? What do you believe about this? What do you think about this? Do you believe a pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, pan-millennial? You know what pan-millennial is? It all pans out in the end. (laughs) What do you think about seven-day creation or long-day creation? Or do people choose to be saved? Do God... All these good questions. And listen to me. Let me just pause and say, if you're a child of God, you need to study these things. It isn't as though they don't matter. They do matter. And if you care about the word of God, you need to get in the word of God and you need to study up on these things. But I want you to see one incredible point. And here's what it's going to be when we look at it. Over and over and over. Paul didn't chase these rabbits. He came back to the empty tomb. He came back to the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you would, in verse 18. Some of the philosophers, these Epicureans, these Stoic philosophers, their response, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Other people would say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. If you want to be light in your world, then you definitely need to be informed about all the social and theological discussions that are floating around in today. But you must be disciplined to bring people back to the resurrection of Jesus. Be anchored in the empty tomb. Now, if you're new to church, you may be thinking, why? Good question. 
I want to share with you, if you're making notes this morning, just jot down this scripture. I'll read it for you. You can come back and study it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the fact, the reality, that the bodily, historical, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It not... Not as a metaphor for something else. No, that Jesus was actually crucified, actually put in a grave, and actually conquered death three days later is central, fundamental. It is the heart and backbone of the Christian faith. That's why Paul keeps coming back to it. Let me share with you this scripture. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12, if you want to go back and study this later. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? There was an argument at the time that this was written about whether or not resurrection was, uh, was true. But if some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And that means that we're also found to be misrepresenting God because we, Paul is saying this, because we testified about God that he raised Christ uh, in, in verse 15. If we're found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified that he raised Christ and, and if it didn't happen, then the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And here's the point. Here's why I'm sharing the scripture with you. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people to be pitied. What is Paul saying? He's saying that all of these interesting, important questions that people may have along the way, they may be good, but they're secondary to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, if I want to be light for the world, I need to be close to darkness and concerned by it. I need to be daily focused on being used by God, and I need to continually bring people back to the empty tomb to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have thoughts about what's happened in the past. Absolutely. I have thoughts about the end times. Absolutely. I have thoughts about everything that the Bible talks about. But when I'm talking to someone who needs to give their life to Jesus, the only good and proper place for me to take them to is the empty tomb. Because if Jesus walked out of the tomb, then he is Lord of all things. And if he didn't, quite frankly, At this moment, you're wasting your time. That's it. So if I want to be the light of the world, I need to be anchored in the empty tomb. Finally and fourthly, what I want to do this morning is answer this fourth how-to. And then I want to end this morning by answering the why. Why do we even need to be the light of the world? But let me share this with you first, this thought. Uh, So if you're making notes, you have down number one, we need to live near and be troubled by the lost. Number two, we need to live daily with purpose. Number three, we need to be anchored in the empty tomb. And number four, we need to understand 
and prepare for lots of different responses. As you go into your world, friends, family, neighbors, classmates, co-workers, employees, whoever it is. And you seek to be the light of the world. You want to obey Jesus. Say, I don't want to just know what Jesus said. I want to obey it. I'm going to go out this morning and I'm going to be the light of the world. You need to understand and prep for the fact that people are all over the place. And the responses that you're going to get are going to be all over the place. I'm going to show you six this morning just in the scripture. We'll mention them. Three are from verses 18 through 20. And three are from verses 32 through 34. Verses 18 through 20, you see critique. You see confusion. You see intrigue. It says some of these philosophers were talking with him. And some of them were saying, what does this babbler wish to say? What, what an insult. Paul is there talking with the philosophers and they call him a babbler. That's a critique. What does this babbler wish to say? Some of them were confused. If you go on reading in the scripture, it says he seems to be preaching something about foreign divinity, right? Like when they say it seems like you sense a little confusion. And, and, and what's interesting is that you can find these responses to the gospel even in this room this morning. Like you can find people who would critique the gospel that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. You can find people who are confused by it and they're going, wait a second, you're telling me that it's not just like this, this religion, this empty religion, but that Jesus actually was crucified and walked out of the tomb. Wait a second. But if that's true, then and, and there's some confusion there. You're trying to work things out and you're thinking, you're going, if this is true, then what about this and that? Yes. Confusion is a response to being the light of the world. You see, intrigue. They say, listen, you need to come with us to the Areopagus. This is actually one of the most beautiful sentences in the whole text. These people who are criticizing Paul, these people who are confused by Paul, their response, come here, Paul, I want you to meet my friends. That's what he said. Come, it said, he brought them, he brought Paul, and he put him at the Areopagus, and he put the pulpit in front of him and said, here, you tell everybody what you've been talking about. How amazing is that? They were intrigued. They hadn't yet embraced the gospel, but they said, come here, Paul, I want you to meet my friends. I want you to tell my friends what you told me. I want you to come to the Areopagus and I want everybody to give you their undivided attention so that you can talk to them about what you've been telling me. Critique, confusion, intrigue. Now, verse 34 through 33, before we talk about why we need to be the light of the world, I want you to see this. Three responses. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people mocked. Listen, if you're gonna be the light of the world, you will be mocked. Write it down. Prepare for it. It will happen. You will not be the light of the world and be overwhelmed and dominated by the sense that you have to please all people. You can't. You will be mocked. It happened to Paul. 
Right here it says, some people mocked. But some people said, let's listen to you again about this. Some people, when you're the light of the world, some people will become what we call loosely seekers. They're interested. They're intrigued. They want to know more about this, but they've not yet made the commitment to follow Jesus. In fact, between services this morning, I had a young lady came up to me and she said, Pastor Zach, I just want you to know that's the category that I'm in. I want to hear more of this. I'm a seeker. I'm a religious person. I believe in God. I think that the gospel story is true. I really want to know God. And I'm trying to figure out how. Wow. Right here in this room was that response. And then some people believed in verse 40, 34, it says, but, but some men joined him and put their belief and their trust in Jesus. So if you're fired up this morning about being the light of the world like Jesus commands us to be, I want you to understand and prepare for the reality that there's going to be a lot of different responses. Now, the question that I want to end with this morning with the time that we have is why? Why do this? Why preach a bunch of sermons on it? Why think about it outside of church? Why be the light of the world? I'm going to give you four reasons, and then we're going to close today. These four reasons are, I guess, bonus reasons, because the perfect singular reason is because Jesus commanded it. That's enough. Can we agree with that? That is enough. The fact that Jesus commands it one time is enough for us to say, okay, then I'm going to do it. But there's more than just one reason, and I want to share them with you. The first, one, another reason, another reason that, that we should be the light of the world is because the world is changing. The world is going to change anyway. We might as well participate in changing it and helping people take steps towards God instead of away from God. What I mean by that is think about your friends and your family. If you could right now, just in the Rolodex of your imagination, and young people, if you don't know what a Rolodex is, (laughs) Google it, but roll through all the images of all the people that you know, and here's what's a fact about each one, every one of them. They'll be different in six months than who they are today. They'll be different. The reality is the world is already changing. So let's get in the game and let's change it towards Christ. Your friends already changing. So let's take a step towards them and help influence them towards Christ. They're going to change no matter what. The question is towards who and in what way. So that's one reason because the world is already changing. The second reason, and I think this is a profoundly good reason, the shining life is an exciting life. Nobody wants to live a boring life. Now, you may have had a rough go at it lately, and you say, well, actually, Pastor Zach, I'd like about six months of boredom, if you don't mind. But in the big picture, we want something to be meaningful, right? We want a life that's meaningful and exciting and powerful. 
And the shining life, being a light for the world is exciting work. Every now and then I meet somebody who says, eh, I'm not very into Christianity because it's like a boring life. Like, have you ever read the New Testament? There is not a single page of the Gospels that's boring. The people who follow Jesus lived powerful, exciting lives. And one of the reasons that I want to be the light of the world, and you may say, Pastor, that's selfish. Okay, I'm selfish, I guess. But it's exciting. The world is going to change anyway. It's an exciting life. Here's two other good reasons before we close. The world is hungry to know truth. Did you sense all the hunger in Acts chapter 17? These people grabbed Paul and brought him to the Areopagus and said, here, tell all these people. Why? Because they wanted to know significance. They wanted to know truth. And the people in your life, yes, there's some who mock. I get that. But if you were to put everybody that you know in this room, the amount of people who long to have a meaningful relationship with their creator is massive. The world is hungry to be connected to the divine. And the last reason is because it really hurts to watch people live in darkness. I go back to verse 16. Paul was internally devastated when he looked out and he saw strangers. These aren't even his friends. This isn't even his family and his classmates or coworkers. These are just people that he bought Pepsi from or whatever, right? Like these are just strange people and he is broken that they live in darkness. It is painful to watch people that you love live in darkness. Why be the light of the world? Because people are hungry to know the truth. And because watching people live in darkness is a painful thing to do. The world is going to change. The question is to which direction. Your friends are going to, your acquaintances are going to change. The question is to which direction. Would you bow with me as we close this morning? As we close, I want to ask you just to think about the response that you've had uh, to the message of the empty tomb. I guess as we begin to pray this morning, can I just be bold and ask you, do you mock the gospel? Are you a seeker? Are you somebody who's put your faith and hope in the empty tomb? Or should I say the resurrected Jesus? You know, it's easy for us to say they will respond differently. But I guess my question is, as we pray this morning, how have you responded? This morning, if you come to the realization that it's time for you to put your hope in Jesus, and instead of being religious, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but moving from just religious dogma to having 
a true life-changing and life-giving relationship with your creator. If you're ready to do that, would you just see me after the service? You may have a lot of questions. That's okay. But let's talk today. Father, as we close our time, I pray for my brothers and I pray for my sisters. That as we leave this building and we go back into the world in which we live, that we wouldn't run from darkness, but with a tremendous sense of confidence in the gospel and being stirred internally at the brokenness of the world, we would live consistently with purpose to bring people to that empty tomb and let them experience a crucified and resurrected Savior. We love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We long for you, Lord. We yield to you, Lord. We surrender to you, Lord. We thank you for this gift that you've given us to gather together, to worship you, to learn how to obey you, how to be the light of the world. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.